Good morning. Let's talk about the future. We love to think about the future, right? Sometimes it's fun to try and figure out exactly what's going to happen in the future. I mean, there's been many books and movies that have been created to do that very thing. Um, I think about H.G. Wells' Time Machine. It had a pretty bleak outlook for uh, what was going to happen in the future. And thousands of years in the future just wasn't good for humanity. Uh, my favorite time travel movie is, of course, Back to the Future. And uh, in part two, they said it in 2015, which was the future back in the 80s or 90s, whenever that movie came out. And, uh, and there were a few things they predicted in that movie that were going to happen. One, that there would be a Jaws 16, and thankfully they stopped at four. Um, then uh, also the Cubs would win the World Series that year, which they didn't, but they did the next year, which is awesome. And uh, there would be self-tying Nikes, which actually came out. Uh, not just the ones that they made that were the, the ones from the movie, but they actually have made self-tying Nike shoes, which you need to charge. So that seems weird, but kind of makes sense. Um, and, and also that we would have flying cars, which I'll be honest, I'm kind of happy that one's not. I've seen how people drive cars on the road. That seems bad. <laughs> anyway, predicting the future can be tough. Not just for screenwriters or authors. You know, I found a list of some quotes from people in the past who, who didn't really predict the future super well. Uh, Thomas Watson, he was the chairman of IBM. And in 1943, he said, I think that there's a world market for maybe five computers. <laughs> I literally have three right here. <laughs> there was a uh, Ken Olson, who's president and chairman of Digital Equipment Corp, said there's no reason that anyone would want a computer in their home. They said that in 1977. Western Union sent out an, an internal memo in 1876 that said, this telephone has too many shortcomings to be seriously considered as a means of communication. This device is inherently of no value to us. Uh, there was a Yale University management professor who had a response to a, a student named Fred Smith's paper who was proposing reliable overnight delivery service. And he said, this concept is interesting and well-formed, but in order to earn better than a C, the idea must be feasible. Uh, Smith went on to found FedEx. So I think he made it feasible. There's one quote that says, a cookie store is a bad idea. Besides the market research reports say America likes crispy cookies, not soft and chewy cookies like you make. And that was in response to Debbie Fields and her idea of starting Mrs. Fields cookies. DECA Recording Company uh, in 1962 said, we don't like their sound and guitar music is on the way out. And that was when they were, re they were rejecting the Beatles. I bet you they wish they had that one back. Irving Fisher, a professor of economics at uh, Yale in uh, 1929 said, stocks have reached what looks like a permanently high plateau. And then finally, Charles Duell, who is the commissioner of the U.S. Patent Office in 1890 said, 1899, said, it can be invented, has been invented. It's tough to predict the future. It's also tough for uh, people who are in the church or say they're in the church. I mean, how many times has there been a prediction for the imminent destruction of the world or that Jesus was coming back on a certain date only for that date to pass by and then nothing happens? And then what do you have to do? You have to go into cleanup control. You have to be like, well, that wasn't really the date 
we miscalculated somewhere, but the Bible's got it. <laughs> even though Jesus said, I don't even know the date. Um, we don't do that here, though. We're not trying to predict the future, other than at some point Jesus will return and God will win. Um, but what we want to do, though, we want to imagine the future. What does the future of Maple Grove Christian Church look like? We're at a pivotal point in our church's history. We're going to look pretty different in a year. But what can that look like? For the past month or so, we've been in this sermon series that we've been calling Preparing for the Future. We're looking at the Apostle Paul's short letter to one of his younger co-workers named Titus. And so if you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Titus chapter 2. That's where we're going to be this morning. Paul left Titus on the island of Crete in order to help establish leaders or elders and train them to lead these churches on that Greek island. As we imagine the future for Maple Grove, there are some core things that we absolutely still need to hang on to, even as we're thinking about what's coming. First thing is that we need to be a community that holds fast to God's word. We need to be one that loves the Lord with all that we are. We need to be one that loves each other in a way that doesn't make sense to the watching world. And we need to be a community that reaches out to love our neighbors through service and evangelism. And it should be here at church where we're trained to do those things. Ephesians 4, 11 through 13 says, so Christ gave the apostles, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So we're to work together. We're to encourage one another. We're to build each other up, like Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica. Proverbs 27, 17 puts it this way. It says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. That's really what we've been talking about for the past few weeks. Paul tells Titus to teach older men to be temperate and self-controlled and sound in faith. And then he teaches old, he says, the older women teach them to be reverent in teaching what's good, among other things. And then these groups, as the older, wiser people, can help teach the younger people. Last week, we looked at what the younger woman can be taught, especially within the family. But this week, we're going to take a look at what we can teach the younger men. So let's dive in. Titus 2, verse 6 says, Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. This week, I read a story from a Canadian pastor named West Bredenhoff, whose father was a pilot for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. He was a pilot for 35 years with the RCMP. Most of the time, this was in a small 19-seat twin-prop airplane. He had tens of thousands of hours in the air and had an immaculate safety record. And this was because he had self-control. Bredenhoff's father would follow the checklists in preparation to the flight to a T. And then a lot of times he would fly without a co-pilot. But even then, he would never not follow the routine, the checklist. He wouldn't try and do it by memory. He wouldn't skip anything that was like non-important. He rigorously followed that routine. Bredenhoff said that there was a saying, there is a saying that there are old pilots and there are bold pilots, but there are no old, bold pilots. 
Self-discipline is so important that Paul's already mentioned it three times in this letter. It first appears in the list of characteristics for the elders. And then Paul tells Titus to teach the older women to, or the older men to be self-controlled. And that the older women should urge the younger women to be self-controlled. In fact, the only ones who are not told to have self-control are the older women. So that probably means they've already got this down pretty well. And I am certain our older women in our congregation have this down pretty good. However, I'm not putting you in that category. I will let you do that yourself. I'm smarter than that. You can see, though, the importance that Paul places on self-control. It's so important for us to have as Christians. It's part of the fruit of the Spirit that he writes about in Galatians 5, verse 22. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. This is how, by the Spirit's power, we're supposed to live our lives. And it's funny, this is actually the only trait that Paul tells Titus to teach the younger men, to be self-controlled. Everybody else gets a list, but young men, it's only self-control. And having been a young man, I can absolutely tell you that self-control is probably the most important thing that we need. Bob Russell wrote that many men who would have been great leaders in the church have ruined their influence on their children and limited their potential impact for the kingdom because they lacked self-control in their younger years. And there's so many external influences that are seeking the attention of younger men. Seeking really to control younger men. And it's not just young men, but that's really our focus today. Whether that's money, sex, drugs, alcohol, whatever. Whatever the case, young men need to be encouraged to be self-controlled. This word encourage, it means to persuade with authority. And what that means is that you know, for us who are trying to help younger men along, we need to build a relationship with them so that we can have that authority to speak into their lives, speak into the things that they're doing. Again, Bob Russell gives us a picture of what this could look like. He says, most of the time, young people need what educators call positive encouragement. Catch them being good. If you encourage them when their behavior is correct, they'll be more likely to repeat it. But sometimes young men need chastisement. They need someone who will love them enough to speak the truth. If you are usually positive, your occasional corrections will hold a lot more sway over a young man with great leadership potential. When you consistently give positive reinforcement to the things that are going well, that they're doing well, then your ability to correct is going to be even greater because you'll have built up trust with them. But you have to be careful with that trust because if you're not living this out yourself, then that trust is going to go away quicker than you can even think about. It's in this where Paul directs his next comments, and he's directing these to Titus specifically. First part of uh, Titus 2 verse 7 says, In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. Set them an example by doing what's good. You ever done anything with tracing paper? It's that translucent paper you can see through. You can put it over top of another thing, and then you can draw on it to kind of match what's underneath. 
architects and design engineers used to use it probably before computers. Um, I used to use it as a kid to draw comic book characters uh, by, you know, you'd have the original underneath it and then you'd trace on top of it. And depending on how careful you were, you could draw something that would be pretty close to the original. Or if you weren't that careful, it, it could be pretty far off. Of course, then I'd be like, why are you using tracing paper? But, but what if you were tracing, you know, if you had tracing paper on top of another piece of tracing paper? Like, like you draw something on one sheet of tracing paper, you take it off, take the original away, and then you're tracing the tracing. You know, if, if you were careful um, when you did the original, your first tracing, then... You know, you're more likely to follow the original, be closer to the original. But if you're a little bit off, then your copy is going to be a little bit off, and that just keeps going. No matter, though, how close you were, it's never going to completely match the original, but it can be a pretty good representation. I think the same thing can apply for discipleship. If we're to teach people how to follow Jesus, then we need to be following Jesus as close as we possibly can and as carefully as we can. And you know what? We're not ever going to perfectly match Jesus. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can try and get as close as we're able to, and we can be a fairly good representation of him. And that way, when people follow us, when we're leading others, when we're leading them then in the right direction toward Jesus. And we can say, like Paul tells the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1.11. He says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So let's go back to what Paul tells Titus as he teaches these churches in Crete. He says, in everything, set them an example by doing what's good. Now the them here, it's referring back to everybody, not just the younger men, but also to the younger women, the older men, the older women, the elders, everybody. Titus is to set the example for them by doing what's good. It's action. It's not just teaching. Paul's going to get to teaching here in a second. But it, in this part, he's, he wants to talk about what Titus is showing. It's his life, and it's living out what he's teaching. Titus is to set the example in everything that he does. One of the best ways to teach is by example, especially with younger people. It's better to show than tell. This is what Paul is telling Titus as he teaches, as he raises up leaders for the churches on Crete, he's got to provide an example for everything that he does. The people are going to look to him. And it's a new church, new churches here. They don't really know what they're doing, so they're looking to the leader who does. If he only teaches, but if he never does, then they're going to quickly lose interest and they're going to fall through the cracks. As we're discipling people, we should be showing them how to follow Jesus well, not just telling them that. That's why discipleship is best done in smaller groups or in one-to-one situations even with somebody you know, who's a little bit farther along in their walk with Christ and somebody who's not. And we've got examples of this in the stories in Scripture as well. I mean, Jesus had 12 followers who followed him for years, listening to him preach, but also watching him work. And the same is true of Paul. Paul had people with him all the time as he went and planted churches in the Gentile regions. Timothy and Titus were among those. But we have to take care in how we're teaching as well as being the example. Paul concludes the rest of verse 7 and then verse 8 by moving on to how Titus should teach. 
He says, in your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. Paul points out three areas that Titus should show in his teaching, and the first is integrity. Integrity is so important to Christian teaching because without it, we're going to lose our witness with others. Chuck Colson's quoted saying the three most important ingredients in Christian work are integrity, integrity, and integrity. Billy Graham took integrity very seriously. In a time where it seems that Christian leaders consistently stumble and fall, Billy Graham remained an admired religious leader. He was serious about his life being a witness that he put safeguards in place to help keep him on the straight and narrow. He said, I decided that there were three areas where Satan could attack in, pride, morals, and finances. Over the years, I tried to set up safeguards against the dangers of each. I was frightened and still am that I could do something that would dishonor the Lord. There's a word for people that teach something while they're not following it or practicing it themselves. That's a hypocrite. That's something that we all need to guard against, but especially those of us who are teaching. The outside world has leveled that charge against Christians for a long time, that we're all just a bunch of hypocrites. We preach one thing, and then we live in ways that would violate that preaching. Preacher Charles Spurgeon once warned about this when he said, it's, terribly, it's a terribly easy matter for, to be a minister of the gospel and a vile hypocrite at the same time. Having integrity in your teaching, it doesn't mean that you're perfect. What it does mean is that you're trying to practice what you preach. And then when you screw up, you own up to it. You repent. You try to live your best. Or you try your best to live a life worthy of the calling. Proverbs 10.9 says, Whoever walks in integrity walks securely. But whoever takes crooked paths will be found out. Not worth it. By the way, ever, I don't know if you've ever said this. I know I have been like, well, nobody's around, so I can do this. God is everywhere. He knows. <laughs> All right, so Paul's second area in teaching is seriousness. The gospel is serious business because it deals with the eternal destinies of those who hear it and who follow it. We've got to treat the good news message of Jesus dying for our sins with the seriousness that comes with that message. And there's a soberness to it. That doesn't mean that we have to look like we're in mourning all the time or that we can't laugh or have fun, not at all. I mean, the small group that I leave, you know, we love to cut up and we laugh with each other. Sometimes we laugh at each other. We usually start talking about, you know, how our weeks have gone. This is how our, our weeks go. You know, we start talking about how things go. We chat for a long time. Then after an incredibly great transition, we dive into our study of Scripture. And we chase rabbit trails as we go. Like We, we go into this really well. My small group is here, so they're all chuckling. <laughs> Sometimes after we finish that, though, like this last week, we'll start to talk about serious things. And, and you can tell, like, the mood changes in the room. Like we get more sober-minded. We get more focused when we're talking about the serious things. We're serious when we need to be. We have fun when we don't. And teaching can be the same way. Like Rick and I try and have fun when we're preaching, mainly so we don't bore you to sleep, which we do notice, by the way. 
We just don't say anything about it to you most of the time. Sometimes we do, though. <laughs> but we want to throw humor in, and we want to keep things light at times. But when we get to the important stuff, when we get to the gospel, we get serious. Because we know that that is the life-saving message. And we're not going to try and do anything to obscure that. And it deserves seriousness when we're teaching. That leads to the third area of teaching, which is to have soundness of speech. How somebody presents a topic is important. To have soundness of speech, it's not necessarily about the doctrine, but instead it's about the actual presentation of the message. Tim Keller talks in his book, Preaching, about those who are preaching and what they should be striving for in their sermon prep. And he says, it's these things. He says, you're trying to understand the biblical text, distilling a clear outline and theme, developing a persuasive argument, enriching it with poignant illustrations and metaphors and practical examples, incisively analyzing heart motives and cultural assumptions, making specific application to real life. All of this takes extensive labor. You guys just thought we came in on Sundays and just off the top of our head did this stuff. You know better because you know that we're reading a lot of it. But uh, It takes work to prepare a sermon. And that's just the technical aspect of it. There's the other part in this um, quality of soundness. This word, when it's used throughout the New Testament, it refers to a person who was healed or restored or made well. As one commentator writes, he says, words can cripple and harm, but Titus's discourse, his words, his message is to be restorative and healing. Its soundness lives in its potential to strengthen and make whole. Those who teach do all the things that Keller talked about, but we do it all for the purpose of being restorative and healing. Ultimately, though, it's the Holy Spirit who's the one who's going to make a sermon great. He's the one who works in the hearts of all the listeners to soften that, to hear the message that we are presenting. We try and you know, present well and then get out of the way. When the teaching is prepared well, when it's presented well and soundly, then it really can't be condemned, Paul writes. It is sound teaching, it is restorative, it is healing, it is true. Paul then concludes this section by talking about the opponents to Titus in the finish of verse 8. He says, Titus, do all of these things so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Paul's told Titus to set an example in everything by doing what's good. And his actions are to match his teaching. His teaching has integrity, it's serious, and it is so sound that it can't be condemned. Why is Paul instructing Titus this way? So that those who oppose him may be ashamed, that they won't have anything bad to say. Must have been people on the island of Crete who opposed the message of Jesus that Titus was teaching. I mean, if you remember from when we were talking about the first chapter, Paul spoke about the rebellious people who were trying to add requirements to the gospel. He said in Titus 1.16 that they claimed to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. 
So unlike these rebellious people, Titus is to set the proper example by doing what is good and then teaching in the ways that were mentioned so that they can't have anything bad to say about him or, more importantly, the gospel. He says that they're going to be ashamed because of this. Paul's spoken about feeling shame before when he was teaching one of his young followers. In 2 Timothy 2.15, he writes to Timothy, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. We live lives, we teach the gospel message that we don't need to feel shame in doing so. We're doing this for God's glory. But as we do this, the people who are trying to catch us out, they're they're not going to be able to. They may feel shame in trying. Peter writes in one of his letters, first letter, of Peter chapter 2 verse 12 live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us that's the whole goal really it's all to move people closer to Jesus that includes those who might disagree with you or attack you your teaching your lives We should seek their salvation as well. Hopefully, not only will the people that you're teaching follow Jesus more closely, but those who are your opponents might begin to follow him as well. As we close out this message today, I want to go back to the question that we were asking in the beginning. How do you imagine the future for Maple Grove? As I look through this passage and the ones that we've talked about for the past couple of weeks, I I really do see the need for discipleship with the different generations. I see the need for the older people in our congregation to invest time in the younger. And that's not just ages necessarily, but also like in your spiritual walk. Like those who are younger in their walk should be discipled by those who are older. It doesn't really matter how old you are. But those who have been walking with Jesus for a long time, like we've built up some wisdom. Not that we get it perfect, but we can help you walk well as well. Having godly men and women in the church who are able to instruct younger members to walk with them through good times, through bad times, it's invaluable. And the goal is to prepare them to not only live the gospel out in their lives, but then in the future, when they're older, be able to do the same thing for the next generation to help them walk with God, to walk with them with integrity. I don't know completely what this is going to look like here, but as I imagine the future of Maple Grove Christian Church, it has to be a vital part of it moving forward. And so if you join me in praying for that as, as we continue to move closer and closer to the next phase of whatever we are going to be here for God's kingdom at Maple Grove. Pray for that. Pray that God will lead us in a way that, you know, I mean, we have things for kids, we have things for teenagers, but, you know, we're one church. We're one body here on this hill with going to be a nice new road. 
you know, like we are all connected and we all work best together as that body of Christ. And so if you would just take the time this week, next week, on into the future, just to continually pray, pray not just for how we're going to do it as a church, but pray how you're going to do it in your lives, how you can walk with integrity, how you can lead others to do this very thing. With that, would you pray with me as we close? Heavenly Father, Lord, I just, I I pray that you would help us as a church to see what the future holds for us here at Maple Grove, what your future holds for us in your kingdom. Lord, I, I, I pray that we would see opportunities to be able to walk with others who are younger in their faith, to help them to walk with integrity, to train them up, and then send them out. And it's all for your kingdom, Lord. It's all because we, we want to be like you. We don't want to see anybody perish. We want to see all brought to faith in Christ Jesus. And we're not just going to do that in this building. We've got to get outside of it. And it's living with integrity, not just when the lights are on. But it's living integrity, living with integrity, you know, even when nobody's watching. Having that self-control. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be able to do that. Help us to imagine a greater future for your kingdom here. And Lord, uh, we come to that time in our service where we remember the sacrifice that you made as you sent your son. We do all of this because we're able to do all of this because of what he did for us on the cross. Taking our sin there. Father, we have a baptism this, this morning as well. And... You know, it is another, it's a younger, younger man who is signing up to follow you, planting that stake in the ground to say, you are my Lord. Father, we just pray that as a church, we could come around him. We pray your blessing over him, that he has made that, that great confession or will be making that great confession that you are Lord and Savior. So, Father, as we take these emblems for communion uh, at this time, we just pray that uh, we would do so in a manner that is pleasing and worthy to you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.